Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Raphael Manguel. He's been on the show before. He's the Nick O'Neill Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, head of research for MI's Policing and Public Safety Initiative, and a contributing editor to City Journal. He's also the author of the brilliant book, Criminal Injustice, and he's on today to discuss the state of crime and policing in the U.S. and his recent piece, Brutal But Atypical, on the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. So, Ralph, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Last Friday, uh, the city of Memphis released harrowing video footage of five police officers beating Nichols who had been pulled over on suspicion of reckless driving. Nichols collapsed repeatedly as the officers were delivering kicks, blows to the head, baton strikes. Tragically, he died three days later. As you noted in your City Journal piece, reactions to the video have been understandably universally critical. Everyone who's seen that, whether right or left, decarceration advocate or law and order type activist or police officer, denounce what happened. So is there any additional context that might help explain without at all justifying what happened there? Or was this really just a case of five men committing what amounted to a a murder against a helpless victim? Yeah, I'm thinking that it's the latter, although I suppose, you know, as the investigation continues, we may or may not learn uh, some things that might shed light on why this kind of crime uh, may have been more likely to occur than it shouldn't have been. I mean, you know, the New York Post over the weekend uh, did a, a piece kind of noting that uh, the Memphis Police Department had been struggling with recruitment and retention and as a result lowered standards for officers um, right around the time that at least uh, two of the individuals involved in the beating uh, came on to the job. And, you know, I, I've noted this on a number of prior occasions. I mean, my big worry about the anti-police rhetoric that we have seen kind of ramp up in the wake of Ferguson in 2014 is that it will function to discourage highly motivated, high achievers from wanting to do this job. And if that happens on a grand enough scale, which I think we're starting to see, you know, my fear, as I've articulated in the past, is that the delta between the typical perp and the typical cop will start to shrink. And if that happens, we're going to see a lot more Tyree Nichols. We're going to see a lot more cases in which blind rage overcomes uh, the sort of, um, you know, disposition uh, that we would you know, want to see in officers. And, and, and that's a, a disposition toward restraint. You, you could see really a downward spiral being created where Absolutely. you're bringing in uh, less and less talented people. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of a theme that runs through criminal justice debates more broadly. I mean, I, I suspect that people who are critical of the institutions that constitute our law enforcement apparatus um, you know, kind of what their strategy is, is is to work to deny the system resources. And that denial of resources, of course, contributes to bad outcomes. And then those bad outcomes are pointed to as reason to either deny resources even more or to disband the system altogether, which I suspect is the goal of some people. Um, and and that, again, you know, it's not really good for anyone. If you care, truly care about outcomes, if you truly care about police abuse, you want very highly educated, psychologically stable people to take this job. And that's not going to happen if it keeps getting talked about the way that it is. 
The, the uh, mainstream press reaction, reaction of some politicians to this is to try to frame the story in two or three different ways. So one, that the killing demonstrated the fundamental racism of police, even though um, five of the officers, like Nichols, uh, were black. Uh, another, perhaps a more widespread response gets to what you were just talking about, that the the policing profession is fundamentally corrupt, uh, even though in this case in Memphis, the officers were immediately fired, they've been charged with crimes, and they've been attacked by uh, the profession across the country. You know, some, some of the commentators in the press even seem to express disappointment that um, the, the killing had not resulted in widespread rioting and mayhem as we had seen uh, so awfully in 2020. So you know, what, is, what is your view of these three different reactions? Um, you know, why are, are, are these off base? The, you know, the charges of racism seems particularly a stretch here given, given the race of the perpetrators. Um, but but what, do you, what do you take away from those three responses? Yeah, I mean, the, the racism accusation is really a reflection of, of police critics, you know, folding themselves into pretzels here. I mean, as you said, all of the officers involved uh, were black, as well as Tyree Nichols. There wasn't a word uttered about his race throughout the beating. No, you know, nothing on the body cam footage that seemed to indicate that this was a motivating factor. And I don't think that it needs to be in order for us to be outraged about it, right? I mean, there's this sense that, you know, all bad things kind of must be racist, which I think is, is probably wrong. But the way that I understand the people People who make that accusation, basically what they're saying is not that necessarily these individual officers were motivated by racial animus, but that they are part of an institution into which racism is imbued, into which, you know, that, that, that has fundamental foundations in a racist history and a racist past, you know, such that oppression is kind of built into the formula. Um, and I think that's also wrong. And I think it's wrong for the following reasons. I mean, you know, the argument rests on disparities that exist in enforcement. And there is no denying that black men are more likely to be arrested than their white counterparts. There's no denying that black men are more likely to uh, be the subjects of uses of force as compared to their white counterparts, be imprisoned, etc. But that only looks at one side of the ledger. Enforcement is not the only output of policing or the criminal justice system writ large. It also, when it works, produces crime declines. Every single study of policing that we have seen that actually looks at what its impact is. I'm talking causal analyses, randomized control experiments, the highest quality research that you can do. They all show that policing generally, investments in policing, hotspots policing, all reduce crime. Now, why is that important in the context of a race accusation? Because crime is not evenly distributed. But if you look at our homicide problem, right, and you charted out homicide rates broken down by race, for black males, you know, they'd have to extend the chart to, to the height of a skyscraper, yet for, you know, their, their white counterparts, it would be much lower. I mean, the black male homicide rate is 10 times the white male homicide rate. So when crime goes down, it disproportionately benefits low-income minority communities, particularly black men. And, you know, there's, I just did a thread. Well, on, they're the primary victims of the murders being committed by the 
black males in question. That's exactly right. And so the question becomes then why on earth would an institution allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of black men so disproportionately benefit black men when the system achieves its stated ends? And you know, ask any police chief, any law and order prosecutor, you know, what, how do you define success? What is it that you want to achieve? And they'll tell you, we want to get crime under control. We want to reduce it. Well, that doesn't help rich white people. It helps low-income minority communities disproportionately. And that is an inconvenient reality for the race hustlers pushing that, that narrative. Now, on the fundamental corruption point, you, know, uh, that you can just look at the data. Right. This, this is one of the reasons why you know, uh, we titled the piece the way that it is. It, it, there is no, no matter how yeah. you slice it, this is not a common outcome of policing interactions. Uh, the assumption you would get if you took the New York Times line on this is that these kind of incidents are happening all over the country constantly. And that's just not the case. It's not. It's not. It's not the case at all. I mean, every single data analysis, I mean, just look at NYPD data, right? In 2021, the NYPD fielded 6.4 million calls for service. They made more than 166,000 arrests. They only recorded 5,000 uses of force, almost all of which were just, you know, forceful takedowns. Only 36 firearms discharges. Which means that if all of those discharges happen within the context of a separate arrest, you're talking about 0.02% of all arrests involving the use of purposeful deadly force. And that's without disaggregating the unjustified uses of force from the justified uses of force. And so when you're looking at the kinds of things that happen to Tyree Nichols, that is even rarer still. Again, that's not an excuse for it. It's not a reason even not to you know, uh, think about potential reforms to minimize the possibility of this happening in the future. But context is really everything here. And what we cannot allow the other side to do is to point to statistical anomalies and hold them up as representative of the institution simply because they can produce a handful of really terrible videos and examples every year. In a country of 330 million people, you'll always have you'll always such have examples such ex- exactly over right. a period of time. Yeah. You know, and then the disappointment about the widespread mayhem, you know, I, I kind of got that sense myself, but I suspect that the major reason why we didn't see the streets burn the way that we did in the wake of Ferguson or in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder was that, you know, I think the public is having a hard time believing the race narrative here. And it really was the race narrative that lit the fire uh, that burned almost uncontrollably after those prior incidents. And and so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't see that happen. If there's another potential reason for why it didn't happen, I suspect that it has something to do with the fear of the public that stems from the recent crime spikes that, you know, came in the wake of those riots. It, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that after those riots, police activity went down and crime skyrocketed. Now, um, let's zoom out and just discuss the state of crime and policing more broadly, apart from this, this horrific case. You know, one might think that uh, decarceration and opposition to the police would be unpopular political positions in what you just acknowledged as a, an environment where crime is surging again. Uh, but in this last election cycle in 2022, the results were, were fairly mixed. Uh, some law and order candidates won, others lost. Uh, and at the same time, city and state governments from Washington, D.C. to Illinois kept pushing ahead with criminal justice reforms that we've argued in City Journal uh, promise further laxity toward disorder 
and, and violence so that things could very easily get, get worse. So I wonder what are some of the proposals that have been uh, floating around uh, to um, push this, this uh, you know, anti-policing agenda uh, further? And, you know, what have we learned from this last election about their political viability? Yeah, well, I think I'll start with the, the last question, which is I think what we learned about their political viability is that they are not the poison pills that even progressives uh, thought they would be, right? I mean, for a really long time, the sort of dominant narrative within the sort of progressive criminal justice reform movement was that whatever wins were attained over the years were extremely fragile and that at the first sight of a crime spike, people's appetite for reform would would dissipate and you know the the ball would be rolled back and and you know we'd go back to the sort of tough on crime days of the 1980s and 90s and I think we've learned that that is just simply not true um, to the extent that those um, those statements were made in good faith it, it reflects a serious underestimation of the momentum of the criminal justice reform movement um, but I suspect it was really just kind of tactical um, in terms of you know making that case now in terms of recent, kind of reform activity that we've seen despite the massive spike that we saw in, in serious violence in 2020 that was followed by a smaller spike in 2021. Um, and, you know, crime kind of held relatively steady in 2022. You know, homicides and shootings decreased a little bit, but lots of other crime categories like robberies, burglaries, car thefts all went up uh, and went up significantly. Here in New York, I think we saw like one of the single largest uh, one-year increases in part one offenses despite murder um, going down about 12%. But I mean, take you know uh, Washington, D.C., for example. Uh, they just overrode, I believe, the, the mayor's veto there to rewrite their criminal code. Um, and the rewrite is, is, is pretty consequential. It is going to essentially do away um, with mandatory minimums. Um, it is going to extend the right to a jury trial, even to misdemeanor cases with no new funding with which to carry out that mandate. Um, you know, of course, by design, because it's going to force the system to kind of triage and essentially will Say end. That, yeah, these, these cases aren't worth prosecuting. Exactly. So they're going to quasi-legalize all kinds of misdemeanor conduct. Um, and it's going to reduce the maximum penalties for, you know, various offenses, including burglary, robbery, and carjacking, which has been in the news a lot in the Washington, D.C. area because they've been on the rise. In Illinois, legislators moved forward uh, and the governor signed the um, uh, Safety Act, which, among other things, was was meant to eliminate cash bail. Now there was a sort of last minute uh, um, uh, court order that held the bail provisions up from going into effect. And, you know, the, the state Supreme Court is going to hear that argument soon. Um, I suspect that um, the, the act will be upheld under the Illinois Constitution. It will go into effect um, at some point this year. Um, but that's, you know, that's just uh, the prediction of, uh, of, a, of a lowly journalist. Um, you know, but, but the Safety Act did do other things. It included, um, you know, a bunch of, of uh, police reforms. Um, it gives the state attorney general uh, more oversight over um, policing. It, you know, uh, allows uh, complaints to be filed against police officers anonymously. Really just, you know, I think the main takeaway here is that what we're seeing happen even after the crime spike is still unidirectional in nature. It is all pointing towards either lowering the transaction cost of breaking the law or raising the transaction cost of enforcing the law. Um, and this is something that, you know, 
we're seeing in other parts of the country. Another example that I, I highlighted in a recent piece for you guys was, um, you know, the Oregon governor uh, essentially discontinuing um, executions in that state, and again lowering the transaction cost to certain kinds of of criminal conduct. And so, you know, I, I think what this tells us is that the public needs to be much more engaged than it is. Um, I think it's still very passive, um, and I suspect that that passivity is partly a function of fear of speaking out, right? I mean, for so long, so many people have been told that in order to be good, you have to be for this agenda because this agenda reflects social justice, it reflects racial justice, and who wants to be against that? Um, and so it's going to take a while for the public to kind of, you know, uh, get up the courage to say enough. Yeah, well, we've gone through this at various points in you know, modern history. Looks like we're in the middle of one such cycle. One last uh, question relates to another charge. I, I just saw an economist piece, for example, um, but it was it was typical of a number of articles I've read that quotes or, or that shows that American police um, wind up killing more people uh, per capita than, say, Japanese police do or Canadian police. Um, I wonder what your view is on that. These these uh, pieces leave out the in, the crime environment exactly. entirely, which <laughs> seems to the, me a big missing. That is yeah. the, you know, again, context is everything. And, and you just hit the nail on the head. That is precisely the context that's lacking in the presentation of, you know, figures like that. Of course, the, uh, you know, killings by police per capita are going to be higher in the United States than in countries like uh, Japan. A lot of that has to do with the fact that gun death per capita is significantly higher in the United States than it is in Japan. This is something that, you know, the the same liberal police critics who make that argument remember within the context of the gun control debate, right? I mean, they'll, they'll be the first people to tell you, well, the United States is an outlier on serious gun violence. Well, that's going to reflect itself in all kinds of enforcement outcomes, including police uses of force. Well, thanks very much, Ralph. Don't forget to check out Rafael Manguel's work for the City Journal website, uh, that's at www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. Again, he's the author of Criminal Injustice and this recent piece, uh, Brutal But Atypical. You should check it out. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. As always, if you like what you've heard on today's 10 Blocks, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Thanks again, Ralph. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests. 